Welcome to our fifth video in our Reformed Pillars series. This week we move to the second pillar of Reformed theology, which is covenant theology. This is a very important pillar, and many of the following pillars are going to uh, really uh, be grounded in what we consider with covenant theology. Covenant theology has been uh, emphasized by Ligon Duncan of Reformed Theological Seminary as uh, essential. He, he states in an essay that Reformed theology is covenant theology. In other words, to claim to be confessional or Reformed uh, and not hold to traditional covenant theology, Duncan is saying that there's going to be inconsistencies, that it's not going to be a, a consistent system of thought, that you need covenant theology to have uh, the, uh, the whole system of uh, Reformed theology cohesive. Now, you may claim to be Reformed, uh, you may simply be a Calvinist and not hold a Reformed theology, but there's going to be uh, weak points, inconsistencies. I think he's accurate, and not only do I think he's accurate on that, but J.I. Packer felt the same way in an essay introducing uh, a classic work on covenant theology. J.I. Packer claimed that the gospel of God, the word of God, and the reality of God are not properly understood unless viewed in a covenantal framework. Uh, big claims that your, uh, your proper understanding of the reality of who God is, of, of the word of God, understanding that properly, and, and of the gospel of God uh, are uh, only properly and biblically, therefore, understood fully in a covenantal framework. Uh, again, those are big claims, uh, but I don't think they're inappropriate claims. In one book on covenant theology, uh, which I'll recommend perhaps next week, uh, the author, John T. Rhodes, uh, begins by challenging us that the Gospels themselves present themselves as covenantal books or about the covenant. So, for example, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 72 and 73, uh, the Gospel of Christ is just being introduced to us there in that first chapter of Luke. And yet, uh, Zacharias, by inspiration, singing about the salvation that God is sending his people, declares that God has, is about to act to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. And then as we come to the end of one of the other Gospels, Matthew 26, verse 28, on the night Christ was betrayed, as he instituted the Lord's Supper uh, with, his, uh, with his disciples. Uh, Matthew 26, 28, Christ declares, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, Jaunty Rhodes, in uh, Covenants Made Simple, um, suggests that most of us probably could just stick our finger over and block the word covenant there. And that's how we really understand what Christ is saying 
that Christ is simply saying, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. All that's true, but our Lord himself felt it necessary to include the idea that the forgiveness of sins comes in the context of the pouring out of his blood in covenant. So at the beginning of Luke, the end of Matthew, in other words, the Gospels claim that covenant theology is essential. Jesus claims the night he's betrayed that covenant understanding is essential. So what is a covenant? Well, you might imagine that there are as many theologians giving definitions uh, of what covenant is as, as there are books on the covenant. Um, for example, a lot of the books today are going to emphasize ancient Near Eastern treaties, suzerain vassal treaties. Uh, and a lot of this is based on uh, archaeology that we've discovered in the past hundred years. Uh, where uh, it can be shown that there are these uh, this this approach to treaties in the ancient Near East that all contain the same things. The document that uh, officially sealed uh, that there would be this treaty or this relationship between usually a, a more important king or warlord and lesser vassals uh, always contain certain elements. Uh, and then if you're taking this approach towards covenant, you look at the book of Deuteronomy and you say, look, the outline of Deuteronomy is pretty much the exact outline of those vassal documents, those suzerain vassal treaties. That's all true and I think uh, very helpful for us in a number of ways. I think the problem is if you approach biblical covenant theology uh, only under that system, there are certain covenantal events, moments, uh, eras in the Bible that um, don't fit that perfectly. And then what you sometimes see is people writing off some of the, the historically understood covenant discussion. I think that's uh, unfortunate. So to say that uh, some of what we find about the covenant in Scripture is, is uh, tied in and, and looks identical to these ancient Near Eastern treaties is one thing. To say that we're going to uh, view the whole thing only in that context, I think, is a mistake. Um, trying to back off from being, uh, from putting all his eggs in that one basket while still retaining much of the benefit of it would be a book like O. Palmer Robertson's Christ in the Covenants, or the Christ of the Covenants. And there he defines covenant as a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. There's a lot of good to say for that definition as well, uh, like the suzerain treaty discussion, Palmer Robertson has a lot of very helpful thoughts on the discussion. Um, but I, I think perhaps uh, we could fall into the trap of over-defining and therefore limiting our discussion more than the Bible does. And so I, I want to suggest uh, a, a more general definition. Um, Notice, notice how Westminster Confession of Faith uh, presents 
um, covenant. Uh, this would be a confessional reformed statement on it. And in chapter 7 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is on God's covenant with man, the first part is to declare this. The distance between God and the creature is so great that unless reasonable, uh, that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condes condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. So most generally, uh, that confessional perspective, we could say, uh, tells us that a covenant is a relationship uh, established by God where he condescends, he who is infinitely above us condescends to bend down and form a relationship with us. Let's use that as our starting point. Let me suggest uh, four things that uh, we can look for in a more general sense uh, as we think about covenant in the scriptures. Uh, first, uh, coming off of Westminster there, we could say that covenant theology uh, talks about um, official relationships, typically between a superior and an inferior. Uh, official relationships. That's where Robertson was talking about a bond, something that's legally binding. And, uh, and yet we could think of it only as legal and miss the relational side. Uh, I think it's important for us to think uh, in terms of an official relationship. What's the great example that still exists in our world today? The great example would be marriage. Marriage is a covenant between uh, two parties legally, uh, or as a believer, you might say, um, uh, between two parties in the sight of God and legally. And in this covenant, there is a contract, uh, a piece of paper, as the world likes to sneer at it. But it's not just a piece of paper. It's a legal document. It's an official thing. It's a bond. So that on the one hand, marriage is a relationship, a beautiful, growing, and thriving relationship, we hope. And on the other side, in marriage, the thing that sets marriage apart uh, from other relationships is that it, it also is a legally binding, uh, or should be legally binding, and uh, official contract of covenant. I, I think those two sides are very helpful. God is forming a relationship with us, but it's not something flippant. It's a relationship that has legal teeth to it. So uh, uh, an official relationship. Uh, secondly, this relationship we, we should consider is secured and guaranteed by promises. For our purposes, especially thinking in the Bible of God's promises, the thing that we can mistakenly do when looking at biblical covenants is to think that they're secured and guaranteed by my law keeping. 
And that's where we fall into a legalistic mentality. But the beautiful thing that is expressed all throughout Scripture is that this covenant relationship is secure and guaranteed to us, not based upon our law-keeping, but based upon God's promises. Uh, I am the Lord, I do not change, therefore you are not consumed, gets right at the heart of this. Why is the relationship secure? Because of God. He has made promises and he's not going to back down on them. Now, that being said, in covenant, some of God's promises are threats. He promises that there will be discipline for the wayward child, discipline for the one who casts off restraint and casts off uh, the expectations of the covenant. But even that is God keeping his promise. And uh, what we will find is that... Uh, in, in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, that God's promise of threat in that regard typically, typically comes across in terms of temporary life discipline, whereas the promises that secure the relationship have to do with eternal uh, value, the eternal secure uh, relationship. And so we need to be careful how we play those two things off of one another, uh, the threats of the covenant versus the promises. The promises, of course, are what secure and guard the relationship. Paul talks about that some in the book of Galatians, and that's not a bad place to go and read and think about how promises are what secure the covenant. Third, this official relationship secured by promises, uh, third, is administered by sanctions or expectations. And this is an area where those suzerain treaties are very helpful. In writing up the contract, there would be the expectations, right? The, the greater Lord would make promises, and then he would also give his expectations. When I call, you come and fight alongside of me. Uh, when it's peacetime, uh, you pay this amount of money to me in exchange for which here's my promise, uh, and uh, I, will, I will guard and protect you. I will be like a father to you. Many of the treaties had that kind of mentality to them. Oh, we could say that of God's covenant with us as well. He gives expectations, uh, but always in the context of having made his secure promises. Uh, one fine example of that is the preface to the Ten Commandments. Do the Ten Commandments present us with the way we can secure our relationship with God? If we keep these Ten Commandments, he will stay in a relationship with us? Well, actually, he starts at the beginning with, um, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. He starts with his promises and the security that those promises give. That preface is speaking of something he had promised Abraham 500 years earlier. And he's saying, I've done it. I'm keeping my promise. Now, here are my expectations for you. So the relationship is administered through sanctions, expectations, 
Often we think of this in terms of law, but that is not what guarantees the relationship. It is God's promises. And we see all of this through then the fourth thing that we need to look for when we're talking about uh, covenants, and that is uh, the relationship is through a representative or a mediator. A mediator would be the term that is most often found in Scripture, um, but you can think in terms of a representative, someone who stands in the place of the lesser party, uh, but also representing that party before God, representing God before that party. In other words, a go-between, and that's what we, we mean by mediator. There's one who stands between God and man in the relationship. Depending on the sinfulness or lack of sinfulness of that representative is going to determine the greatness and the beauty of, um, of that covenantal moment, isn't it? The difference between uh, Moses sinning while being the representative versus Christ never sinning is going to have a, a great difference for our faith and uh, for our joy. Um, again, these are just four things I think we could be looking for in a more general covenantal discussion, uh, not to write off any of the qualifications people include for a more precise uh, suzerain view or other definition like that. Um, there are a lot of important points, but I think these four are important. That a covenant, when we talk covenant theology, we're talking about an official relationship both legal and personal, an official relationship between God and man, a relationship that is secured and guaranteed by God's promises, and then is administered through sanctions and expectations, and that this relationship is through a representative or mediator. Well, how many covenants are there in the Bible? That's a bit of a trick question because there are a bunch of moments where the language is used uh, and other places where all of the uh, nuances of covenant are there without the word. Uh, so in terms of places where it's used uh, just in passing, you know, you could think of Phineas the priest who made atonement for the people and God therefore in pleasure uh, made a covenant with him and his household. You'll find that in the book of Numbers. Or David and Jonathan uh, having a covenant between them. Second Chronicles, in two places at least, uh, have the declaration of the people of Israel declaring that they're going to covenant together to seek the Lord their God. So there are a lot of moments of covenant in the Bible. And then there are places, again, where the word doesn't appear but all the, all the aspects of what a covenant is are present. When we talk about Reformed confessional covenant theology, we typically talk about three major covenants. And I want to just briefly mention two of them today, and then we'll come back and spend the bulk of our time on the big one next week. Um, but in covenantal theology, uh, you have first uh, the covenant of redemption. And some refer to, refer to this, especially in theolo uh, theological circles, it'll be referred to as the pactum salutis. 
the pact of salvation. The covenant of redemption is a, a covenant which is not as expressly talked about and openly talked about, but where we find enough language in scripture to conclude and refer to this uh, as a covenant. So hear what Louis Burkhoff has to say in Manual of Christian Doctrine about the covenant of redemption. He writes, in the covenant of redemption, we have an agreement between the Father as representative of the Trinity and the Son as representative of his people, in which the latter undertakes to meet the obligations of those whom the uh, uh, obligations of those whom the Father has given him, he, Christ that is undertakes to take the responsibility for the expectations of the covenant for those the Father has given him, and the former that is God the Father promises the Son all that is necessary for his redemptive work. That is, the Father says, you go and do this job and I will give you everything. I'll put everything at your disposal so, so that you can accomplish this and do this thing. Back to Burkhoff. This eternal covenant is the firm foundation of the covenant of grace. If there had been no eternal counsel of peace between the Father and the Son, there could have been no agreement between God and sinner. The covenant of redemption makes the covenant of grace possible, end quote. Now, um, again, there isn't a specific text that comes in and uses the phrase covenant of redemption, but there are a number of texts that talk about the council that took place before the creation of the world or before the foundation of the world. Several of these are found in the prophets, um, but there's also the more uh, uh, popular or well-known verses. For example, Ephesians 1 verse 4, just as he, that is God the Father, chose us in him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Or Ephesians 3, verse 11. According to the eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. See how that points to the Father having this purpose before the creation of the world, which would be accomplished through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, there's an implied agreement between the Father and the Son before the creation of the world that this act would be done. Second uh, Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us with holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. That's a powerful statement. God is uh, saving us, has saved us, he's called us according not to our works, but according to his own purpose and the grace which was given to us in Jesus Christ. When? On the cross? Well, no. No, Paul says, before time began, the Father gave us his love in his Son. What a powerful implication about the, the relational promises going on between father and son before the foundation of the world. 
You could also read Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 speaks in very covenantal language of the parties involved, the promise, and the sanctions. Uh, what God will do through his son, the relationship they have. Well, the second major covenant in covenant theology is the covenant of works, which the Westminster Confession of Faith refers to as the covenant of life. And I, I like that. The covenant of works emphasizes the expectations of the covenant that we will keep the law. Uh, but the covenant of life, which Westminster Confession uses, uh, is emphasizing the promises, the thing that guarantees the covenant, remember, the promises of God. And so it speaks of the covenant of life. Well, the covenant of works is that which was established between God and man, humanity, through, here's the representative, Adam. God established this relationship with humanity through the mediator, Adam, in the garden before the fall. In this covenant, God promised life of fellowship and blessing, but with the stipulation that Adam not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the consequence of Adam not meeting the expectations of the covenant would be spiritual and physical death. Although the word covenant is not uh, very clearly and blatantly presented to us in a specific text, uh, it is seen throughout uh, the, t um, the, the, the whole Bible uh, in this comparison and, and this implication about Adam representing uh, humanity. And the mere fact that all humanity, according to Romans, the fact that all humanity are under the curse of the covenant, that is death, implies that Adam represented us, therefore we share in his curse. But Romans 5 especially draws us to this when it compares Adam and what happens to all who are in Adam and Christ and what happens to all who are in Christ. There's a clear representative viewpoint here in terms of um, God making a covenant with Adam that had results for all humanity, a covenant with Christ which has results for all who are in Christ. So we'll come back to that hopefully more next week. Um, but the covenant of works is this covenant where Adam is the representative. Now, if there is one clear text that presents covenant in relation to Adam, or rather one text that uses the word covenant in relationship to God's relationship with Adam, it is Hosea 6 verse 7. But this is a highly debated verse uh, among expositors. So it reads something like this. Hosea 6-7 could be translated, but like men, they transgressed the covenant. Judah and Israel, like men, transgressed the covenant. Or it can be translated, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Now, if you translate it like Adam, they transgressed the covenant, it can be taken in two ways. You see the complication here. It can be translated rightly men because the first father's name, Adam, is also the word for man. 
uh, or it can be translated Adam, and there's this city in Canaan called Adam. And so it could be like the people of Adam, uh, they transgressed the covenant. And in Hosea chapter 6, several other places are then referenced later on. So maybe that's how you take that. Or it can mean like Adam, our first father, they transgressed the covenant. Now, I lean towards that last one uh, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, I think if you take it as all mankind, uh, like all mankind, Israel, all men everywhere, Israel and Judah also transgressed the covenant, I, I would have this question for you. What covenant? If there's no covenant with Adam in the garden, uh, then... Judah and Israel are brought under covenant through Abraham and through Moses. The question would be, uh, when they sin and they break the covenant, how is that like all the rest of humanity who, wait a second, when were they brought under covenant with God? Well, they were brought under covenant with God through their first father, Adam. Same could be argued if you take it as the city of Adam. It's a pagan Canaanite city. When were they in covenant with God? Well, again, it's only through our first father, Adam. So I think however you cut that uh, uh, particular verse, you are brought back to the garden, our first father, Adam, in some way. God made a covenant uh, with humanity. Uh, now, one thing I would argue in favor of it being the, the man, Adam, in Hosea 6, 7, is when you go and look at Job 31, 33, which has a lot of similarities, but doesn't use the word covenant. And there, it's clearly a reference to our father, Adam. So the first two covenants, the covenant of redemption, God the Father uh, representing the Trinity, God the Son representing uh, the elect, and uh, this covenant that they are establishing before time began to save a people for themselves. Uh, the covenant of works or life with God uh, covenanting with Adam, all humanity through Adam in the garden. Uh, and of course, we know how that went. Next week, we'll consider, Lord willing, the, the third uh, covenant, the major covenant in Scripture, the, the one we think of the most, the covenant of grace. And we'll think about the covenant of grace and ask the various moments of the covenant of grace from uh, whether it's Noah, Moses, Abraham, David, New Covenant, how do these all fit together? Are these a unified covenant, or are they individual, separate, and unique covenants? That'll be our focus, Lord willing, next week. Um, for now, let me just recommend uh, one booklet. This booklet is The Covenant of Grace by Calvin Knox Cummings. It's an older publication by Great Commissions Publications, but I think I could still find it on Amazon when I was looking for it. It's uh, 27 pages long, and it's a, a very basic introduction to covenant theology uh, from a very historic uh, perspective. I'll have uh, a little bit uh, more uh, uh, longer recommendations next week, uh, Lord willing. Have a great week.